Natasha, you work at the Science Museum. How long is it since you set foot in the Science Museum? Well, actually, I was in yesterday, which is a really... <laughs> oh, well, uh, thanks for that. <laughs> I, hope, I have been working at home mostly for, for the last year, but um, we're starting to put actually on display and we're starting to prepare for opening um, on the 19th of May. So I am I am going in to um, to do to do some, some work on gallery, which is mega exciting. How exciting. Natasha, do you actually prefer going to the Science Museum when no one's there? Is it really lovely? It must be. Well, it's sort of turned on its head, to be honest, because, um, you know, if you work in museums, it is always a perk of the job that you get to go through early in the morning or late at night and there's no one there. And it's amazing. But actually, when it comes to a pandemic and we're closed a lot of the time, it's actually miserable because you're doing all this work and you want to see what people think of, you know, the exhibitions and the galleries. And it's just really disappointing. But I think we all cannot wait to reopen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lisa Evans, when were you last in? Oh no, I'm. I can't ask you about the library again because I know you. You practically <laughs> you, you live in camping. a tent outside the yeah, library. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in point two of a second after they opened the doors on the eighth uh, of April. Yeah. Shall we get this show on the road? Do it. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in a sanatorium near Seattle in the late 1930s shivering under paper blankets as the wind and the rain rattle the window of the ward and the squeaking wheel of the food trolley edges closer. In the bed next door, a woman begins to bark like a dog. I'm John Mitchinson, the <laughs> publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. Uh, I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and today we're joined by two guests. For the first time, Natasha McEnroe. Hello, Natasha. Hello. Hello, Natasha. Thank you for coming. And the OG herself, <laughs> teenagers everywhere, screaming in horror at what I just said. The original guest, Lissa Evans. Welcome back, Lissa. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Natasha McEnroe is the keeper of medicine at the Science Museum in South Kensington, London. Her previous post was director of the Florence Nightingale Museum. And prior to this, she was museum manager of the Grant Museum of Zoology and Comparative Anatomy and curator of the Galton Collection. Oh, Galton, that's a nice coincidence. We're going to hear that name again later at University College London. Before that, she was curator of Dr. Johnson's House in London's Fleet Street and has also worked for the National Trust and the Victoria and Albert Museum. Natasha was editor of Medicine and Imperfect Science, Scala 2019, co-editor of the Medicine Cabinet, Colton 2019, and co-editor of the Hospital in the Oatfield, The Art of Nursing in the First World War, Strange Attractor 2014. Her research interests focus on 19th century public health and the history of nursing. She is a trustee of Dr. Johnson's House in London and of the Erasmus Darwin Museum in Lichfield. Again, Litchfield. This is our special Litchfield Memorial episode. (laughs) Croydon is taking a back seat today, everybody. We're talking about, we're all about Litchfield. And you are a freeman. And I say this with feeling because everyone who's joined this meeting commented on how bad my hair is. You You are a freeman of the worshipful company of barbers, Natasha. That's right. I'm a proud barber. What does that, what are the duties that that involves, please? Well, they're, they're, it's one of the livery companies. So there are there are two medical livery companies: the um, the apothecaries and the barbers. Um, and the barbers, of course, are based at Barber Surgeon Hall. And this dates right back to when um, surgery and the duties of a barber, the more traditional duties, were combined. 
and people would travel around and they might pull your teeth out or they might give you a haircut, depending on how they were feeling. <laughs> Good Lord, that's the full Sweeney Todd thing. That's the barber <laughs> surgeon. I love it. That's excellent. Can you do anything for my hair? Yes, when, when, when we're out of lockdown, I will certainly come over and do my best. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank God, God knows. Thank you. Lissa Evans writes for both adults and children when she's not guesting on Backlisted. Her recent novel, V for Victory, which is out in paperback from Black Swan in June, you're only days away from being able to enjoy it, listeners, yeah. is set in London at the end of the Second World War uh, and completes a loose historical trilogy which began with old baggage and crooked heart. This is her seventh and a half backlisted. <laughs> That's the extra... <laughs> measure out our lives in episodes yeah, yeah. <laughs> of this, yeah. For as well as appearing on the very first episode on JL Cars A Month in the Country, oh, wait till we do that one again. Yeah. Lissa has been a guest on episodes 36, 78, 90, 108 <laughs> and 125, discussing variously the work of Patrick Hamilton, Edith Wharton, Charles Dickens, Marcel <laughs> Proust and Geoffrey Willans and Ronald Searle, as well as a one-off mini cast on George Saunders's Linko in the Bardo in which we were all the worse for drink. <laughs> she has the, re- the range and the stamina of a true reading pro. Lissa, welcome back. Right. Thank you. I sound so erudite. It's fabulous. <laughs> Proust to Molesworth. It's an autobiography if ever you want to re- write. Well, Lissa, we, we agree that Batlisted would not have been possible or Batlisted without your ongoing involvement in the podcast so thank you so much for coming back again absolutely central central to it oh been my absolute pleasure yeah and we've got a cracker today the book that natasha and lissa have chosen to discuss is the plague and i the second in a sequence of best-selling memoirs by american writer betty mcdonald first published in 1948 by jb lippincott and co in philadelphia But before we start, John, we have to agree how we are going to pronounce the title The Plague and I, because we're British and we ruin the joke by saying (laughs) The Plague and I, because if you're American, you say something like The Plague and I, and The The Plague and I is closer to The Egg and I. Oh my God, I never got that. The plague and I. The plague and the I. Plague and okay. I. Oh, okay. So we, by saying the plague and I, plague. while adding elegance and heritage to the title, are killing the joke. Except I definitely read the egg and I first. <laughs> <laughs> the egg and I. Yes, that's right. The egg and I was her first massive best-selling memoir. And the plague, the plague, the plug, the plug and plague I. And that I. is the, her second book and that's the one we're talking about today but before we start filling our blue henry's with sputum andy (laughs) what have you been reading this week (laughs) (laughs) that might be the best one of those ever natasha can tell us what a blue henry is i can't really follow what the sputum (laughs) That's ruined the quiz later. We all take a sputum test and (laughs) see what happens. I've been reading an absolutely 
marvellous book, which thoroughly transported me and entertained me. And it's called Mr. Bowling Buys a Newspaper. It was written by a man called Donald Henderson, and it was published in 1943. And the good news is it's currently in print. It was brought back into print after a very long time, about three or four years ago by HarperCollins. So unlike a few previous books in the last few weeks, which are hideously expensive and difficult to get hold of or you can only get from the library, this one should be widely available. Mr. Bowling buys a newspaper by Donald Henderson. And this uh, was recommended to me by a very nice chap on Twitter called Rob Haynes, who is at Rob on a bike. And he was raving about it and saying, somebody on Twitter recommended this to me and I can't remember who it was. So if you know who you are... I think it might uh, be Christopher Fowler. Christopher Fowler, I bet it is Christopher huge Fowler. Huge fan, a very good writer himself, and a huge Indeed. fan of this. Yeah. And a great lover of um, obscure, obscure, lost writers and books indeed well if it was christopher fowler and for christopher fowler and rob haynes thank you very much the thing that distinguishes mr bowling buys a newspaper is first of all it's like reading a novel that is a cross between hangover square by patrick hamilton in terms of the point of view of a murderer we know he's a murderer from very early in the novel it's a cross between hangover square and Brighton Rock by Graham Greene, in as much as it's about spiritual salvation and whether it's possible if you are guilty. And a Simonon Roman Dur, in as much as it's a kind of like horrible, um, visceral, seedy, non flinching depiction of life in London and its suburbs during the early years of the Blitz where people do bad things to one another. So, listeners, if you like the sound of that, a cross between Patrick Hamilton, Graham Greene and Simonon, Mr Bowling Buys a Newspaper is the book for you. The second thing about it is in his essay, The Simple Art of Murder, Raymond Chandler, Raymond Chandler said this about this book. I have a book called Mr. Bowling Buys a Newspaper, which I have read half a dozen times and have bought right and left to give away. I think it is one of the most fascinating books written in the last 10 years, and I don't know anybody in my limited circle who doesn't agree with me. Yet I doubt it has sold 5,000 copies over here. There is something wrong with the book business. (laughs) (laughs) This was catnip for me this was the most enjoyable enjoyable you know sometimes when a book sounds so good and you get to it and you think oh well it was good but it was a bit too much like things i like this was just the right alchemy of those different elements that i was talking about earlier i absolutely loved this inside out i'm just going to read you a little bit because what this book is about while seeming to be about a murderer going about his business. It's really about Mr. Bowling, the personification of evil at large, and another character who is a personification of kind of motiveless good. And it's how those two qualities and characters complement one another and how one can or can't save the other. So here's a little bit. This is set in uh, this this section is set in one of those giant modern 
apartment blocks which were very popular built in the 1930s in south london like in ballam or 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 uh uh areas such as that and uh, we are in a squash club where dancing and is going on within one of these buildings and cocktails are being drunk and sitting at the bar is a man called mr farthing listen you will love this so like a patrick hamilton it's not true Mrs. Farthing often told everyone that Mr. Farthing ought to be dead. He was far too good for this world. There was a kind of hint that she meant it, but nobody quite knew for certain what her reactions to him were. Poor Mrs. Farthing had twisted legs due to a prenatal fall, and she was obliged to walk as if she was on a very wide horse. Everyone said, She's such a dear, it's so sad, and that loathsome man. Mr. and Mrs. Farthing were employed by the company which ran Addison Heights, And for a salary, they looked after the squash club, the restaurant, and a kind of furniture shop full of things to put on mantelpieces. Nothing heavy, bookends and lampshades and paper knives and so on. Mrs Farthing spent all day in the restaurant, and when dinner was over, two and threepence, five courses, took the lift down to the basement. Mr Farthing spent all day in the shop which was in the reception hall next to the restaurant, and on all possible occasions hurried down by lift or stair, to see how Daphne was getting on in the club bar. Although there was nearly always something very wrong with the world in general, and on this particular evening Mr Farthing was in an excellent humour, Daphne having been nice to him and a reasonable allowance of draught beer in from the brewers, it was getting a job to get Scotch ale at all. Mr Farthing's particular grievance, speaking generally, was against an entity which he sneeringly called capitalists. It was understood all round that Mr Farthing was that very thing in embryo and this was the very reason for his bitterness. He said in the same sentence what he thought about capitalism and what he would do when he made his pile, which as his wife said, and as Euclid said, was absurd. (laughs) (laughs) You're impossible, Alfred, she said. Do dry up. He never did dry up. His well was inexhaustible. He sat on that red stool of his, on the client's side of the bar, looking like an anthropoid ape. He had no forehead and a bald, sloping head and a great stupid jowl set in a soured line. His neck was yards thick. The moment Mr Bowling came into the club for that first time, he spotted him. His little eyes appeared to vibrate in unison with his lips as he labelled him out loud. Hello, he said behind his hand to Daphne. Another bloated capitalist from the look of it. (laughs) Well, you'll be pleased to hear, everyone, that Mr Farthing comes to a very sticky end. (laughs) Uh, And and not long after that scene. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Sorry. a A slim little book as well. I read it straight through in one go, Lissa. I never Reader. do that. <laughs> I re- I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Mr. Bowling buys a newspaper by Donald Henderson. Absolutely wonderful. John Mitchison, what have you been reading this week? Um, I've been reading a truly, I think, uh, wonderful work of contemporary history. Um, it is African Europeans, an untold history by Olivette Otelli. Now, Olivette Otelli is a professor of the history of slavery at Bristol. I think she's the first woman in Britain to be a black woman in Britain to become a professor of history. And this book is I just one of those, it's one of those books where 
you know, you're so familiar with the kind of pattern of the European history. It it's it tells the story of 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 the of I suppose the relationship between the continents of Africa and Europe through people of African descent who have played a huge part mm. in the in the development of the history of of Europe. But what's what's great about it is that nobody's put all of those stories together in one place yeah. and told it sequentially so that you're getting a history of Europe. It's almost like it's like standing in a completely different place in the house. So you're unfamiliar, you know, you, you've got used to where everything is and now you're looking in a completely different place and suddenly the house is totally different and you're noticing all kinds of connections and patterns you'd never seen before. You know, some of the stories are, I guess, people, Septimus Severus, was born in Libya, so was definitely African, probably black, Emperor of Rome. But I guess the the thing that enlivens the story, it's a very, very good uh, book of history and an important book of history. It's uh, it's restoring a kind of perspective to to our understanding of of, of the relationship between between Europe. I mean, two of the things that stand out. One is that. Race wasn't terribly important until slavery. Mm. What mattered for yeah. most of the first, as you would say, the first of half of European history up to the 17th century was religion. And in the early church, there were there were black saints. That was part of the the, the, the kind of the, the Christian church's boast is that Christianity would was was good for anybody. So that that's the first thing that really that strikes you. And I suppose the second thing is that you know, the baleful influence of, of slavery and how that has completely now shifted the way that we think we think about European history for good reason. But she fills it full of amazing stories from, you know, uh, people, a lot of people I'd never heard of. Um, for mm. example, Alessandro de Medici, who I had heard of but didn't realise that his mother was was mother was African. Juan Latino, the Renaissance humanist scholar and poet, um, right through to the present. To, through the 19th century, amazingly, I didn't realise that Jeanne Duval was African, the lover of Baudelaire, and pro- probably, arguably, one of the most mm-hmm. influential kind of uh, women on, on, on wow. the, the development of his poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also through into the 20th century, Batlin Siki, who was a again a heavyweight champion of the world, from, from born in Senegal but grew up in Marseille. Um, it's full of great stories. The scholarship is, you know, impeccable. But you feel yeah, it's it's one of those books you feel I, I will be I'll be recommending this to anybody who wants to understand um, uh, that European history is in fact Black history and the Black history is in fact European history. This book does it does it brilliantly. It's a bit like it's it's not as obviously it's not as personal as something like Empire Land, which I've I've also just read well, by Seth Sanger. I, I was just going to say I've just read by an interesting coincidence I've just read um, Black and British by David, David Ola Sugar. Yeah. And I was wondering whether this, when I saw you were going to talk about this, is this more, I mean, that's a terrific book, I have to say. It is. Is is this book more academic? It sounds like it's an expansion of the idea in Black and British. I think it is. It is definitely academic, but it's very well, it's very well written, very, it's very readable. Um, And it's, as I say, you know, anything that's got lots of great life stories in it is going to be. Yeah. But she does also put it in a, in a, a fantastic context that brings it right up to, you know, Black Lives Matter last year. This is exactly the kind of book that ought to be being taught in schools. I'm going to read one sentence. The aims of this volume are to understand connections across time and space, to debunk persistent myths, and to revive and celebrate 
the lives of African Europeans. And it totally succeeds on all those terms. It's a really fine bit of history. What's it called? It's African Europeans, an untold story, Olivette Otelle, and it is published by Hearst Publishers. Really great bit of history. We'll be back in just a sec. Natasha McEnroe from the Science Museum. You contacted me to say you wanted to join us to talk about this book, The Plague and I, by uh, Betty MacDonald. When did you first encounter this book? So I first read it as a teenager. Um, my mother was a big influence on my reading and all of the Betty MacDonald books were, were, were at home, as with, with many others. But The Plague and I grabbed me because... I was already aware of tuberculosis, even as a, as a young age, because like Val McDermott, I'm a massive Shelley School fan. And the Shelley School <laughs> books um, were t- the school was um, aligned to a sanatorium. So the fear of TB was a massive thing oh, for the wow, girls. Brilliant. So yeah. I was initially grabbed by the by the TB link. But then, of course, the the funny writing, the the world, the new world, you're completely immersed. It's it's like Middlemarch. It's it's all it's all going on. The characters, the humour, the drama. Um, yeah, I was I was absolutely grabbed by it. And how how old were you the first time you read it then? Probably about fifteen or so. But I mean, I think I read them all quite close together. My mother always quoted. Um, uh, Betty's fourth book, Onions in the Stew, um, which was very influential for the way that mum uh, treated teenagers. Ah, oh, that's interesting. You see, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is Betty McDonald was extremely famous and successful for a period in America, but it's very hard to gauge the level of her fame in the UK. I, I had never heard of Betty McDonald until I heard her mentioned by... Lissa Evans. In fact, you said to me when I mentioned this episode, Natasha wants to do this, but you said to me, I will kill you if you let anybody else talk <laughs> about Betty McDonald. Sounds violent. Um, I came across her much the same age and it was a, a, a friend's house when I was about 15. And I, I you know, I was always, I always gravitated to bookshelves in anybody else's house and spent ages looking at them. And I found this, this uh, book, which has got a very, very ugly uh, front cover of a, a girl in a merry girl in in jeans sitting on a whole load of egg boxes. I subsequently covered it with brown paper, but I came across this book and I, I maybe I was staying overnight, I think, and I read it, and it had the most violent effect on me. It was so funny, so unlike anything I'd ever read, and somehow it came into my possession, Andy. I, I don't know how, whether I. I inadvertently took it from that house and then kept it forever. But anyway, yeah, I, I liberated it from the bookshelf and never gave it back. And I covered the uh, the hideous front cover with brown paper. And I totally fell in love with this book. And then I subsequently painfully acquired all the others, as you had to do a pre-internet days. Yeah, you yeah. looked in any second-hand bookshop you could go to. And slowly, slowly, I, I accumulated her other three books, which I have in hardback. So I've been a, a groupie since I was about 15. John, had you read her before? No, I hadn't. I was aware of her for one reason, is that my grandmother, who was a keen reader and particularly keen reader of humorous American writers, she was a big Ogden Nash fan, had a copy of The Egg and I, um, and I remember it on the shelf, and I remember looking at it. It was, a, it was a sort of cartoon of a woman with a, you know, with chickens. And I'd 
it's one of it's curious. I'd never I'd, I'd never picked it. It was one of the books I never picked up and and, and read. Although I wish I had now. <laughs> They're um, so good. She's aren't they? an amazing writer. Amazing. Absolutely right. Amazing writer. Listen, do you think discovering Betty McDonald's prose, how she makes stuff funny, at that age, did influence the, your your desire to to write stuff to make people laugh? Yes, without doubt. I mean, it, you could already say that I I was interested in reading her because I loved reading funny books, and therefore yeah. I I stumbled across her. And in fact, I. I'd acquired a book when I was about 11 in somebody else's house that was given to me rather than me stealing it uh, that time by Jean Kerr, Jean Carr, I think she is, another American woman, very funny writer. So I had come across that similar voice. Um, but yes, it really did because she doesn't write like anyone else. She she takes prose by the scruff of its neck and gives it a good old shake and bettyfies it. And... and to, to write with such originality about what is in front of her. She's not a novelist. Or, yeah, we'll, we will discuss this later, but, yeah. but ostensibly yeah. this is observational humour. And she writes whatever comes in front of her and she writes in a completely original way. It's, a, it's almost like you've been buttonholed by a, a funny ancient mariner. She does not let up. A absolute stream yeah. of anecdote, of, sort of throwaway humour, of incident. But within this stream are the most perfectly crafted one-liners. She writes with such precision. It's not just somebody who's funny. It's somebody who crafts their writing and it's an extraordinary combination the thing i kept thinking was wow i'm reading this in 2021 she very rarely pulls a punch what was it like reading this in its day yeah it must have been anarchic to read some of it it's so unsentimental yeah and yeah and she writes about health about sex she she swears yeah. all the yeah. time she manages to keep it within limits she obviously has an eye, eye on her market but it is it's extraordinary. It's, I keep on coming back to this in my head and not saying it, but it's not like a woman writing. It's not the way it was yeah. expected that a woman would write. Not decorous. While, while often playing the housewife role within the, the framework of what she's writing about. Yeah. So there's a fascinating... Yes, um, or, Andy, rather than playing the housewife role, observing what is in front of her, which is so often denigrated as domestic yeah, frappery, yeah, yeah, but yeah, is yeah. actually what the way that most of us live. So, Natasha, that's how Betty McDonald influenced Lissa. How did Betty McDonald influence you? I think, actually, she did have a huge influence on me. I mean, I was interested in how people used to live. I was interested in history as portrayed in fiction, for sure. And I read a lot in, you know, in my, in my, my, my long-lost youth. But somebody to actually take what is a really hard and difficult subject and to write about it so engagingly and so and and so mm. accurately and be so funny i think really did really did grab me well natasha we're going to talk in a minute about the subject of tb and the culture of presenting that to people here's how they did it in the uk <laughs> in 1950 this is an an excerpt from a uh a public information film called Defeat Tuberculosis. And I want you to think of it as a short story about two sisters called Betty and Joan. Two sisters work in this factory. Joan has a job in the workroom. Betty is the manager's secretary. Recently, she has been feeling thoroughly run down and doing her work badly. The manager, suspecting that ill health is the trouble, 
advises her to see a doctor. She tells her sister Joan, but she says she's going to take no notice of this advice. Joan eventually persuades her. Tuberculosis is not hereditary, although you can be infected by someone who has it. The doctor tells her this when he examines her. He finds her a bit anemic, otherwise there's nothing much wrong. All the same, he wants her to be x-rayed. Then he asks Joan how long she's had her cough, and after examining her also, advises both sisters to go and have an x-ray taken. Under the National Health Scheme, this service continues to be provided free. Soon, Betty can see the result of the x-ray for herself. Her lungs are perfectly healthy, and she needn't worry any more. Now it's Joan's turn. Let's have a look at Joan's x-ray. That patch on her lung is evidence of tuberculosis. The doctor knows what a shock this is for Joan, but because it's been detected at this stage, she's got every chance of getting well soon. For a time, however, she will have to go into a sanatorium. Wow. That's that's like a Chekhov short story. It it's like Joan. Joan nags Betty into yeah. getting her diagnosis, but it's she, Joan, who it's is she, found Joan, her. who has the... The, 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 the consumption. Tragic irony, yeah, yeah. Natasha, how, please tell us, for people who don't know, how tuberculosis was treated in the pre-antibiotic era? There wasn't really a, a standard cure. I mean, it, tuberculosis is an ancient disease. We tend to think of it as a, a post-industrial disease because, of course, it did it did become um, much more widespread in, in overcrowded conditions, in poverty. But really, the, the best way of treating it was um, the, the sanatorium cure, which became popular um, starting in Europe from the middle of the 19th century onwards. And this had two benefits. Um, the first one is that you could actually get people often from very poor backgrounds, feed them properly, keep them warm, um, isolating them from the general population. The other way of treating it is for um, the for TB that often is is located with it, well, it generally starts in the lungs, is it actually the rest cure encourages the patient to wall off the infected area within their lungs. So absolute enforced rest was the order mm. of the day. Which is one of the themes of the plague and I, isn't yeah. it? It's these women who have been used to some, you know, freedom, quote unquote, circumscribed freedom, but freedom, not being allowed to, for instance, read. There's no. a there's a really shocking part where the where they they reading is con considered exertion and therefore is forbidden. Except the men can read. The men can read from the minute they come into the sanatorium because they, as Kimmy, a character in it, yeah. acidly points out, their brains are bigger, and they're allowed <laughs> to read. Whereas women have to have to rest for a month or two before they can manage the funny papers. You know. That whole relationship with authority is one of the things that is is one of the themes of the book, isn't it? That's it, so it is because negotiated. because Betty thanks uh, the doctors in her forward, you know, and yeah. but a whole theme of the book is how the doctors are trying to cure TB and the patients are doing their absolute best to stop them in any way they can by ignoring the advice by by taking no notice of what they're supposed to be doing and um yes this this push me pull you it, it goes throughout the book the book was published in 1948 the book is actually dedicated for dr robert m stiff dr clyde r jensen and dr bernard p mullen without whose generous hearts and helping hands, I would probably be just another name on a tombstone. You know, it's not nothing. <laughs> it's not nothing. 
Um, so it's about a book about life in the sanatorium. I'm going to read the blurb in a minute, but I thought it would be interesting to hear a counterpoint to the UK approach to public health tuberculosis um, films. Here's an American one from the same year, 1950. This is a, an animated cartoon uh, called Rodney, which uh, I, I commend to all listeners. It's on YouTube. This will only give you a flavour of it. We had the Chekhovian stoicism of Betty and Joan. This is what was happening in America at the same time. Rich or poor, little or big, anyone can get TV. I guess coughing, sneezing or spitting is bad anywhere. It sure is. But everyone has the same good chance to be cured. Okay, how do we start curing it? What sort of medicine do I take? The best medicine for you is plenty of rest. I'll start today. The best place to rest is in a tuberculosis hospital. So Rodney entered the hospital. But it wasn't up in the mountains, and it wasn't off in a desert. This where I'm going to stay, Doc? That's right. Right here near home? Well, this isn't so bad. Of course not, Rod. What's going to get you well is good food and rest. Mostly rest. You don't have to go to a special climate. We can cure TB in any climate because you can get plenty of rest and the proper food in any tuberculosis hospital, wherever it is. That's classic Disney music, isn't it? Hello, little fella. <laughs> Am I going to die, Pop? <laughs> <laughs> Natasha, I'm going to ask you to read a little bit about life in the sanatorium, but I've got a copy, a penguin yeah, copy lovely. of The Plague and I. So this is the way this this book was described to UK readers in uh, the 40s and 50s. They'd already had some success with her first book, The Egg and I. Betty MacDonald's The Egg and I, already published as a penguin, proves that she is at her funniest and best when recounting her own experiences. But even Betty's sense of humour and proportion <laughs> fail when she learns that she has TB and must go to a sanatorium. It just reminds you what a tough sell this book must have been. You know, what we how are we gonna how are we gonna how are we gonna cushion that? Let's not bother. Urgent problems face her. What will become of her children until she comes home? And supposing she does not come home. However, her natural buoyancy soon reasserts itself and her gift for laughter is used on herself, fellow patients, nurses and doctors for the period of her cure. Her gay pen makes the detailed routine into delicious entertainment. The reader shares the amusing festivities of an American Thanksgiving and Christmas at the Pines Sanatorium, the occupational therapy of making wool flowers, the excitement of receiving visitors... Her, this is a brilliant use of this word. Whoever you were who wrote this, well done. Her penetrating caricatures of people. <laughs> you know, that doesn't, that sells it short, right? Her, pe her penetrating caricatures of people and her infectious interest in the trivia that make up daily life combine, a combine in a diverting and irresistible book. I mean, I think that's good. That's good very, to sell very good. a hard sell to a, a, an audience in that era. Natasha, could you have you got a little bit now to to give listeners what what Betty actually sounds like? Yeah, so I, I chose this extract because um, I think that we can all relate to perhaps sharing our personal space with somebody who is a bit annoying. 
you know, we've all we've all been in offices or other areas where day after day, you know, someone is actually getting on your nerves. But I think this is just a reminder of what it must have been like to be in really, really close quarters, you know, sharing a bedroom 24 hours a day, you know, potentially for weeks or months, um, you know, at a time um, with somebody who is deeply annoying. Every single morning, seven days a week, when the washwater girls had finally roused Minna, she yawned and stretched and rubbed her thick white eyelids and said, Oh my, I'm so sleepy. <laughs> right after she had washed, she snuggled out again saying, mm, I'm sleepy. And I wanted to scream. Every time I looked at her, she was asleep. Lying on her back, her pale pink mouth moist and partly open, her white eyelids pulled down and rounded over the slightly bulging pale blue eyes. Her sleeping was unnatural and nauseating to me as watching someone eat or drink themselves into a stupor. She was as apparently as complicated emotionally as a bowl of mashed potatoes. <laughs> That's right, but you get a bit... What, now, first of all, Natasha, very very funny but second of all that thing what this is what i mean about her not pulling her punches she is not kind no betty mcdonald and you would expect everything to be american and syrupy and gingham, no, no, no. and that's not what you get with her right no she she, she nails people. she nails characters quite brilliantly i mean her character i would say that was one of her finest characteristics that she she can pin down the character in a, in a couple of sentences yeah. and yes as you say they're not always kind I mean, it's not she's not kind. There's a terrible scene where the woman who barks like a dog, who I'm sort of hunted by, but also smells like a skunk. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like this is not kind writing at all. And I think she was defining herself against when she wrote her first massive bestseller, uh, The Egg and I. It was it was those kind of soupy, syrupy. Uh, you know, I married my, my my husband, and we went and we opened a farm, and it was all it was all wonderful. I mean, and I love the fact that at one point she said, "It still irritates me when women say they prefer to live without running water or electric right, l- l- lights." I know it's a damn lie, and you feel that there's that kind of energy in her writing. It crackles with this sort of, you know, yeah. wanting to wanting to penetrate through the bullshit. Betty is above all else a raconteur and um, when she's when she starts writing it these are stories that she's told over and over again and the true yeah. raconteur yeah, will yeah. not stop to be kind and also they won't stop to be discreet my my, my dear friend Amanda you know I've, I've said to her please don't tell people that because I told her to you in, in, in absolute confidence <laughs> I'm sorry darling it's just too good a story absolutely and the story is demi- the story here's another thing the story will be diminished if you change the names, because by changing the names, you're already letting out a bit of the energy and a bit of the truth of the story, even though the story <laughs> is le- legally problematic, you know, or, or unkind. You're still letting out a bit of the air from that particular balloon. The, the genius, though, that that woman, Minna, that you read about, Minna's got a, a, her husband called Sweet, <laughs> Sweetie Pie. Sweetie Pie. So I looked, can I just, this really short, but it's just so good, this. After he had gone, sweetie pie, Minna sat up and ate every crumb of her supper. And Minna obviously is a hypochondriac and goes on about her illness all the time, including two helpings of the main dish. Kimmy looked over at her, wearing a new pink angora bed jacket and happily eating soup, while the mournful steps of the deflated sweetie pie dragged along the corridor and then said softly, (laughs) with what a vast feeling of relief, 
he will close the lid on your coffin. (laughs) (laughs) I choked on my soup and Eileen shouted with glee. Minna said only, next week he's bringing me a pink hood to match this jacket. (laughs) I mean, it's it's just brilliant comic writing, isn't it? So, so nothing really happens in the plague and I, Lisa. <laughs> so, why is it funny? You love plots. There's no plot. Why is it well, funny? Well, you're saying that, but in fact, there's far more plot in the plague and I than in her other three books. It does have a beginning, middle, and end, and she gets better at That's the end. That's true. That is true. Um, yeah. But yeah. She, spoiler well, alert. <laughs> <laughs> Betty has the original Gimlet eye, but she's also got the most extraordinary ear. She's got that that musical ear for comedy. So yeah. that, as, as Natasha says, she's a raconteur, but she's a raconteur who also polishes her anecdotes to a sort of gem-like brilliance. But this, this, this extraordinary ability to turn a, a good line into a great one, I mean, I... I, I, I noted this bit down that she's talking about when she first gets to the sanatorium. I braced myself for a year-long stay. These casual mentions by other patients of staying two, three or even five years made me feel as though I'd just finished a hearty dinner and then been informed by my laughing hostess that she had canned those funny-tasting oysters herself. It's not just by her hostess, by her laughing hostess that she can yes. those oysters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and she she takes the mundane and she she looks at it with an intensity that 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 unearths wit and brilliance from what other people would not notice and would let would let it just pass by. But she also is able to combine the the, the tragic and the funny in in over a single paragraph or a single sentence. And I've got a bit here from uh, the sanatorium, from Thanksgiving in the sanatorium, which is, um, Betty has noticed that it's very, very quiet. And I lay and thought about the quiet until it finally dawned on me that it was the night before Thanksgiving, that everyone was thinking about home, that the air was so thick with longing, so crowded with memories that it was difficult to breathe. There was a sigh from the room next door. I too sighed as I thought of candlelight and the dear faces of the family around the dinner table, of the delicious Thanksgiving morning smells of cranberries, freshly chopped parsley and boiling giblets, of the time Dee Dee made the gravy thickening out of powdered sugar, of how invariably at the last minute somebody in the family unearthed a big boar who of course had no friends, no other place to go to thanks for Thanksgiving. I remembered the year we'd sat at the dinner table for four hours listening to a deservedly lonely man from Mary's office recall every bridge hand he had held since 1908. The old Alaskan friend Cleve had produced who sharpened his knife on his tongue and spit tobacco juice at the fireplace. The girl from my office who ate four helpings of everything and then ran around the table so that we could all see how full she was, how her stomach rang like a drum. Oh, thanks for the memory. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Brilliant. The deservedly lonely man. That's the thing, right? The deservedly lonely man. That is where the humorous writer has gone to find that beautiful rhythmic phrase encapsulating a truth, yeah, which yeah. is which is could be perceived as unkind. But what she's done is she's gone for the thing. That's why I say she never pulls her punches. Natasha, one of the things that Betty McDonald does in this book. I was thinking as a humorous writer myself, how is she going to deal with the deaths of characters or people she mentions in this book? And the way she does it is fascinating. 
she tells you straight and then she tosses it over her shoulder and she keeps going, right? Because she doesn't want to deep six the the tone of what she's telling you. But the tone of what she's telling you is this fantastic balancing act between total honesty and um, lighthearted humour because that's the situation she's in and everyone there is in. Yeah, and and that is acknowledged, as you say, absolutely upfront that death is suspended over all of them. And it's it's that that makes the whole book, what happened to her, so cataclysmic. And I think it's something that we can all relate to right now, where we are living through the pandemic. She writes that getting told you've got TB and you're going into a sanatorium, it's like she was rushing around, she had errands, she's got to get her kids to school, she's got a job. And suddenly that's all just gone. And exactly the same with us. We all had, oh, but I was meant to be visiting so and I was meant to be doing this. And, and now we're in lockdown. But actually, for the same reason, you know, you're not mucking around. The reason for that is the threat of death that is that is hanging over it. Betty's absolute brilliance is that she takes it and it's not shied away from. You know, there are a couple of really difficult bits in the book, but she she uses that as a focal point for this slice of life that's what she shares with us and she is very good at putting death far enough away without ignoring it but extracting the humorous value about what's happening in the moment so i think one of the the reasons why this works as comedic prose is she's very alive to the the moment she's writing about yeah or the moment she's recalling you know she, she she's brilliant at extracting the value from that and then just telling you and so and so she died six months later she does that with her own father in the book darcy um fairly early on just sort of says he he died and then doesn't dwell on it i think in the biography i remember reading that she had a sister that died that she never mentioned i think it is that sort of laughing laughing in the face of death thing is is definitely her her kind of her, her modus operandi, yeah. The egg and I does the same thing. Here's the situation. I'm not going to pretend it wasn't terrible. Within that truth, for you and me, readers, we can find some space to laugh. That's how she does it. It's brilliant. Yeah. And I mean that book in particular, the relationship between the two of them. Uh, we know that they. <laughs> we know her biography. We know that she and her husband, the marriage, you know, ended. But she doesn't. She, you know, she doesn't give any, she doesn't do any of the, the, the syrupy stuff in that book because she's basically traumatised trying to, to, to trying to live in a, a dilapidated house running a chicken farm with a uh, an annoyingly kind of distant but very positive man who doesn't consult her about anything. As you say, she's uh, her, her willingness to, to, um, to cut to the chase, the comedic chase, I mean, she'll always go, if there's a possibility of writing a funny line, she'll write a funny line. Yeah, you're right, John. You're totally right. But she won't do it if it isn't true. No. And that gets her into hot water. So this idea of Betty MacDonald being someone who's so good at finding the joke that it sometimes gets her into trouble. I read The Egg and I for this, and I was really shocked at the chapter about the Native American characters. Yeah. 
anyone listening to this who reads those books, I think, will be similarly kind of appalled. It's it's really it's not merely of its time. I think it was pretty. It, it was yeah. probably pretty close to the edge in its day. And certainly in the edition I've got from 1989, there's already a health warning in that copy. Yeah. I've got a, 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 a quote here from a letter that she wrote to her agent about characters that she may or may not have libeled. Uh, and she indeed did have a, a, a terrible uh, court case about people who felt they'd been recognised in the egg and eye. But I thought this perhaps illuminates the thing about the racial stereotypes as well and her attitude to what she's writing about. She was writing to Bernice Baumgarten. Bernice Baumgarten, who incidentally, everybody, was also the agent of Shirley Jackson That's right. at the same time. And indeed, Shirley Jackson was the author of uh, not just her famous hor- horrible stories and novels, but also family life, hilarious family life memoirs called Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons, which were published in the same period that Betty MacDonald was publishing her books with the same agent. So I suspect there's something going on there. Anyway, this is Betty MacDonald writing to her agent about how she approached the characters in The Egg and I. I wanted to show how magnificent the country is in comparison with the unsavoriness of its inhabitants. Now I wonder if perhaps my youth, inexperience, loneliness and upbringing didn't make me think the people were worse than they were. Perhaps if I were able to move out there now, I would be as discouraged, as lonely and as cold, but would find the people less horrifying and more amusing. Perhaps the book would have a better flavour if I were to forget the truth and make the people less like the ignorant, immoral, amoral, unmoral, foul-mouthed group they were and more folksy and quaint. If depicting people as they are is libelous, then by all means, let's show them as they aren't. <laughs> you know, I, so I think she's trying to tell the truth as she sees it, and she was in the wrong. Um, but we have to understand that that place is, like John and I are always saying, it's all one song. You know, she... The thing that allows her to talk about one aspect of her life in such an engaging way might be related to the way that she talks about a different aspect in a way we find totally unacceptable. And, you know, she plays that to great comic effect when she's lying there. You know, the major irritation was my roommate who was so damned happy all the time, so well adjusted. She loved the institution and the institution loved her. She loved all the nurses and all the nurses loved her. She loved all the other patients and all the other patients but one loved her. <laughs> that one used to lie awake at the long, dark, cold winter nights and listen, hopefully, for her breathing to stop. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. So naughty. I was going to ask you, Natasha, about the, the treatment of, 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 of TB because that is something that she comes to recognise, that this extreme kind of rest which seems almost like kind of cruelty when it starts, that they're kind of sadistic, that the business do. She actually comes to realise in the end that it, it, it is what's enabled her to 
to heal. I mean, it, it's pretty terrifying TB, isn't it? And the the range of the the treatments in in sanatoria just uh, you know is is very dramatically different because you have the the very very posh elite ones over in the Alps at Davos and and it, you know it's it, if you're paying for that sort of treatment then I can imagine you're not actually going to allow yourself to be bullied by the staff in the same way. The the furs sanatorium the 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 pines it's called in the book. Yeah. was uh, largely charitable. It was self-supporting. And if people were going to be not obeying the rules, they were told very, very clearly, you're going to be out on your ear. Yeah. There's a bed for another patient who, who you know, who probably needs it more. We're going to hear in a moment the um, the film trailer for The Egg and I. But I just <laughs> wanted to, uh, before we do that, I thought it would be fun. Like last year I read... The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. <laughs> well done. Even as I was reading it, I was thinking, why am I reading this? And the answer is, it turned out to be preparation for the plague of I. <laughs> I knew it would all come good in the end, Andy. I knew it would come good in the end. Anyway, I thought this really made me laugh. This is the start of Chapter 17, Privileges, and I know our backlisted listeners will appreciate this, and I, I, I'll take this relatively gently so you can, so you can soak it up. Thursday night was library night, and after supper, pulse and temperatures, we ate our females, put on our robes and repaired to the library to choose books silently and under the watchful eye of the charge nurse. The library on the first floor was lined with bookcases, had a fireplace and leather furniture and could have been a very pleasant reading room. It wasn't. (laughs) It was dark and cheerless and cold and the inside of a fireplace (laughs) like the inside of every fireplace at the pines had been scrubbed and waxed and never tainted by fire (laughs) (laughs) and then she says the books had been donated (laughs) and then she lists them remember these are the books that are in a, a tb sanatorium everybody Meet yourself as you really are. My hand is in the hand of Jesus. <laughs> Daddy long legs. Psychology and industrial efficiency. <laughs> Black beauty. Office wife. <laughs> Elizabeth and her German garden. The magic mountain. <laughs> Away from it all. Let the people know. Jottings from a cruise. Fear. The Conquest of Bread. Pollyanna. And Over the Top by Guy Empey was side by side and at our disposal. Now, I thought when I, when I read that, I thought that's so brilliant. That's such a brilliant combination of books. Maybe it's true. But even if it isn't true... It doesn't really matter. I love the. I love to think there's just the possibility that it's true that a copy of the Magic Mountain would be incorporated in a US TB sanatorium in the 1930s or 40s as standard, because in some ways it would be helpful. <laughs> I just think it's perfect writing. Actually, perfect I mean writing. Elizabeth and her German garden is is a brilliant book. Um, probably very unfashionable oh, at the time when yeah, yeah. Betty was writing, which is why it pops up there. But again, about isolation, a woman completely on her own throughout the throughout the entire book. And um, yes, I just wonder if there's a bit of a, a bit of a linking there. I don't know about the Black Beauty connection, though. 
the athletic horse bounding and having exercise yeah, in the yeah. open air is a contrast with what they with what they can expect for the next few well, years. Well, except you've got poor Ginger dying, though. That's true. That's true. That would be very <laughs> sad for the poor patients. Oh, this is perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves with the quiz that's coming up. Anyway, so one of the things about Betty McDonald is the Egg and I sold a million copies just after the Second World War. It was a huge, phenomenal bestseller. It made her very rich very quickly. And there was a film starring some of the people you're going to hear about here. And um, this is an extract from the trailer of the film of the Egg and I. And there were some amazing things spinning across the screen in the first half of the trailer. And then you're going to hear from somebody very important. So what I've done is I've, um, you can hear me just reading out some of the text that's appearing on the screen. And then we get into the, the main business of the trailer. Here it is. The book that shook the world <laughs> with laughter for two years and still a top bestseller. Open brackets, 1,300,000 copies, close brackets. A book of the month smash, open brackets, 506,208 copies, close brackets. A sensation to the 20 million readers of Atlantic Monthly, Liberty, Reader's Digest. Now, each riotous scene, each wonderful character, comes vividly alive, on the screen. Hello, I'm Betty McDonald. And I think I'm very lucky that some people in Hollywood thought The Egg and I would make a good movie. I've just seen the picture and it's perfectly wonderful. It has simplicity, tenderness, and is very, very funny. Best of all, it has a cast I'm so proud to introduce. There's Claudette Colbert. I'm Betty. Fred McMurray. I'm Bob. Wonderful Marjorie Maine. I'm more cattle! <laughs> Percy Kilbride. I'm Paul Kettle. Howdy. Louise Albritton. Hello. I'm Harriet. Billy House. I'm Billy Reed the Peddler. Richard Long. <laughs> I'm Tom Kettle. Jesus. Indians. And that nasty, uncooperative stinker, Stove. You and I, my friend, are not going to get along at all. Glorious. Brilliant. Glorious. Well... There you go. That was the voice of Betty McDonald. So I just wanted to say there's one thing I'd like to say before we 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 get to the quiz, which is that um, our listener, the writer uh, Claire Deidre, lives in a uh, very close to where um, Betty McDonald lives in the Pacific Northwest. And Claire has written a brilliant piece that um, we're going to put a link to on our website. Uh, about the effect on the Betty McDonald and Natasha and Lisa were talking about how Betty McDonald influenced her. And Claire uh, has written this really great essay about how Betty McDonald uh, influenced her writing. I'm just going to read you the beginning of it. From the time I was nine or ten, I carried a spiral-bound Mead notebook with me at all times. I wanted to be a writer, felt I probably already was a writer, and I feared I would never be a writer. I was constantly looking for clues that would tell me that someone like me, someone from Seattle, someone who was a girl, someone who was a no one, might be able to write a book, a book that got published. And Claire goes on to say in this essay that the thing she gets from Betty McDonald, apart from local pride, is that Betty McDonald showed her how you could take the smallest thing and by using 
your skill and judgment as a writer, spin it into gold. You know, and that for me, as I'm speaking for myself as a writer and listener, I think as well, you must feel this. When you read Betty MacDonald, you're seeing someone who just has that ability to take anything and make it funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can I read you out a bit? Yeah, please. That would be marvellous. The father was a mining engineer and they lived all over the States. And she writes, from Mexico, we moved to Placerville, Idaho, a mining camp in the mountains near Boys, where the snow was 15 feet deep on the level in winter and mother bought a year's supply of food at a time. Our closest neighbour was a kind woman who had been a very successful prostitute in Alaska (laughs) and wore a chain of gold nuggets that reached below her knees. In Placerville, Mrs Worcester had become a respectable married woman, but evidently this palled, for Mother said she talked constantly of the good old days. And I can feel for her because although I have never been an Alaskan prostitute dancing on the bar in a spangled dress, I still get very bored with washing and ironing and dishwashing and cooking day after relentless day. Of course, Mrs Worcester hadn't had an extra hurdle in the path of boredom, that of the same old husband jumping into bed every night. I mean... That's amazing. Oh, so good, so right? Good. The same old husband jumping into bed every night. Listen, even as you say yeah. it, the, the, yeah. but they, I want listeners to hear the music yes. of it, of the phrase. Yes. Though I have never been an Alaskan prostitute dancing on the bar in a spangled dress. I mean, what a yeah, marvellous yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolute gold, yeah. yeah. It is. it is. It's solid gold. But all the books that I've read, they, they just come, it's a conveyor belt of, a banging one-liners you know she's a brilliant comic writer really yeah 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 well would you like to take part in our quiz yes no andy we wouldn't well unfortunately we have to anyway so what we've got i've got a little quiz for listeners it's just fun it's contagious disease in literature uh what i'm going to do is i'm going to give each of our panelists and our producer nikki birch the name of a character the novel in which they appear and i want them to be quincy md and uh i would like them to write the cause of death the contagious disease so we've got one for each of you and then we've got a couple of fastest fingers first rounds so i'm gonna uh start with you natasha are you ready i am Character is Helen Burns in the novel Jane Eyre. What does she die from? TB. Is the right answer. She dies from consumption. I'll take that. Yes, that's fine. But let's see, Lissa, how how confident you are now as we turn to what is what would you write on the death certificate of Beth March in Little Women? Well, they say she dies of typhoid don't they is that right and they've got oh god i've got this wrong i've got natasha coming in natasha uh is it typhoid no it's scarlet fever that weakens her heart fever i should have known that you see i smeared and it's my fault it is scarlet fever i'm so sorry lissa i'm so sorry i'm not sorry um (laughs) john mitchinson especially for you what is the cause of death of the character Aschenbach in Thomas Mann's Death in Venice? And I will not accept ennui. Merda. Veltschmerz. I will not accept Veltschmerz. What contagious disease kills Aschenbach in Death in Venice? And it's, it's, not, um, it's not TB. It's not TB. It's, We've had TB. Have we had syphilis? We have not had syphilis, but perhaps we... 
will. That's that seems that seems, seems wrong. God, I can't remember. I can't remember. You can see Dirk Bogard. Yeah, I can see. Inspiring in a deck chair, can't you? I can see the um, yeah the the hair dye, you know, trickling down his face. Natasha McEnroe from the Science Museum. Go on. Is it cholera? You know? It is cholera. cholera. Ah, the, the great 19th century. Brilliant. And now we come to, we go to our producer, Nikki Birch. Uh, Nikki, if you were filling out the death certificate for nearly the entire world population in Stephen King's novel, The Stand, which pandemic has killed them all? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't read it. But I did say, is it syphilis? But I don't think that is. Um, <laughs> what a book that, <laughs> that would, would be. be that would be quite no. a, uh, exciting. Is it the Spanish flu? Oh, Natasha McEnroe, we're throwing it over to you. Is it the Spanish flu? I would have said Spanish flu as well. It is a super flu. Oh, like a SARS. Souped up by the US government also known as Captain Trips. Oh, it's, I, do I get fundamental... half a point for being the flu? Yes, you get half a point. Yeah, it's, it's a form of flu. It's a new variant flu. Okay, and now this is open to everybody. Syphilis. Fast... <laughs> <laughs> Fastest fingers first. In the story, And the Moon Be Still as Bright, from Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, what disease wipes out the entire population of Mars caught from human settlers? Smallpox. Oh, so close, but wrong. Chickenpox. <laughs> yes, Nikki, it's chicken. Damn! You gave that to me, John. Sorry. Here's another one. The inhabitants of the planet Golga Frinsham in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. God are killed off by a virulent disease contracted from what? Rabbits. Not rabbits. Anyone? Gold of Contracted from a dirty telephone. Dirty telephone. Yeah. Because the residents of Golga Frinsham have sent all the telephone sanitization engineers <laughs> off to Earth to die <laughs> in a spaceship crash. And are rewarded by that. And there's, I've got one last uh, uh, question for you all, but specifically for John Mitchinson. If you were filling out the death certificate of one of the most famous deaths in literature, Little Nell in Charles Dickens's The Old Curiosity Shop, what would you say kills her? Ooh. Um, I'd always thought it was cholera. It is not cholera. Pneumonia. Pneumonia. It is not pneumonia. Typhoid. Natasha. It is not typhoid. It is fatigue after a long journey. <laughs> we all get that. It's terrible. Terrible long journey. Which is not really communicable, I'll give you that. But it's exhaustion and malnutrition and the combined effects from a long journey. Oh. Healthy and heartfelt thanks to Natasha and Lissa for inviting us to sit at Betty McDonald's bedside. To Nikki Birch for constructing the podcast version of a pneumothorax machine, combining the expelled air from our four plural cavities into a single harmonious <laughs> exhalation, and to Unbound for all those beautiful thoughts. You can download all 137 previous episodes of Batlisted, plus follow links, clips, and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. 
And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising and your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and for less than half the cost of a day's bed rest at the Pines Clinic, they get two extra lock listeds a month. Our own version of a sanatorium for the heart and soul where we share the films, TV shows, music and books that we've used to keep ourselves calm and our breathing steady. <laughs> what we cough up? <laughs> sputum. That's sputum. Um, yeah, lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. So thank you very much to this week's batch who are Kirsten Anderson, Leonor Tato, Anne Cohen, Nick Hunter, Mena V. Van Prague, and Piers Ricketts. An extra special thanks to George Pendle, who joins the illustrious roll call of master storytellers, the highest circle in the backlisted firmament, who, as well as earning our eternal thanks, will be treated to all kinds of exciting, exclusive benefits. So uh, let's wrap up. Let's say, Natasha, thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed for asking me. Lissa Evans, thank you so much. The original guest for original. coming back. Thank you very much, Lissa. <laughs> thank you, Lissa. It was my pleasure. I'm, I'm just only sorry that you didn't uh, let me just spend the entire hour reading bits of Betty McDonald out. <laughs> if you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listeds, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.